Good morning, good morning. It's great to see everyone. So very glad to see bright, smiling faces a few days after Thanksgiving. If you want to open your Bibles this morning, we'll, be in, we'll start in John 13 and spend most of our time in John 14. For those of you who don't know me, I see a lot of familiar faces, but for those of you who don't know me, my name is Lee Parker, and I'm one of the shepherd leaders here at Haynes Creek. Um, Abby Todd normally fills this pulpit, but on occasion, um, when he is away, myself and others get the blessed opportunity to fill in in his stead. Um, you can be praying for Abby and for his family. Always be praying for your pastors. Um, I don't think we often realize the, the, the pressure that they live under and the expectations that they live under. Um, so pray for your pastors. Um, they, they need it. Um, they deserve it. Um, and the, quite frankly, they can't do what they do without it. Um, so be praying for them for sure. Also, um, I got an email this morning from um, Josh Cornett, who was the pastor who helped start this church some three years ago. Um, and he is in preparations to go to the mission field in um, Colombia, and uh, he has been hauling wood out of the jungle for a week um, in preparation for um, building some, some furniture that's needed at a Bible training school um, there in Mexico where they've been in, a, in language school. Um, so I say that to two things. A, pray for Josh, pray for Jacqueline, pray for their kids. Um, they need your prayers for sure. But as Midia, as Lydia mentioned earlier, um, Lottie Moon Christmas offerings coming up. Um, we have a very real, tangible connection to what the International Mission Board is doing abroad. Um, so don't forget about those things. Remember, as, as you're giving to Lottie Moon, that's helping missionaries like Josh and Jacqueline be on the field. Um, the International Mission Board has a very different model than most mission-sending organizations. We don't have for the most part, deputized fundraisers within the Southern Baptist Convention. Um, we give to the cooperative program, we give to Lottie Moon, that money goes to the International Mission Board, and that's what funds our missionaries on the field. Um, so this, this holiday season, as you think about how you're going to give and where you're going to give, um, I encourage you to remember um, Lottie Moon and, and make place for that um, in the way that your family worships this holiday season. Um, I do hope that you had a great Thanksgiving with your family. Um, I would be remiss if I stood before you this morning and um, did not share the, 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 the conviction that the Lord has put upon my heart um, when it comes to the holiday season and what it represents. Obviously, there's a direct connection between what we celebrate at Christmas and the scriptures, um, but I, I've had a lot of conviction lately about the way in which I view and the way that I conduct the holidays. Um, it's very easy for selfishness to reign when it comes to the holiday season. Um, and even in a season where there are slogans about it's more blessed to give than to receive and all of those things, it's so easy for selfishness to reign in the way that we spend our time, the way that we spend our money, and the way that we spend our relationships. And I've just felt this weight upon me to say there's got to be a difference way. There's got to be a way that the, the table at Thanksgiving and the table at Christmas looks different. 
for a holiday season that carries so much weight for us as believers, those tables should look different. There should be different people at those tables. There should be different conversation at those tables. There should be life at those tables. And the the text we'll talk through this morning, I believe, gives us a strong foundation to view those relationships, those events, those traditions in in a new and a different way. So this morning, we're going to spend our time primarily in John 14, 1 through 7, but we're going to back up into John 13 to give us a little, little stronger context as we begin um, looking at this passage. Um, before we read the passage, I always like to give context, because uh, it, it just helps us to understand what are we reading, why are we reading this, why does it matter, what's, what's the larger narrative that's occurring. So... Hopefully, we know this by now, we've been walking through John for a number of months. Book of John was written, writer says in chapter 20, verse 31, this book is written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ and the Son of God. So everything we talk about, everything that we read in the book of John is to that end. It's so that you, so that I, so that we may believe that Jesus is the Christ and the Son of God. This particular passage that we're going to read, this is it's a conversation between Jesus and his disciples, specifically Peter and Thomas in the passage we'll look at today. What I want you to notice as we walk through this passage is, is two things. One is the, the genuine nature of the conversation. There's no superficiality here. Um, it's so easy in the day that we live in to view each other through assumption Um, and through expectation, and not actually see and understand the person that's standing in front of us. So you'll you'll see as Jesus interacts with both Peter and Thomas, the the genuine understanding and care he has for those two men. So that's the first thing. The second thing in terms of context is as we read this passage, for those of us who have been in the church, we'll come to John 14, 6, and we know it inside and out. Those of us who were raised in Awana recited it more times than we care to think about. It's a very familiar verse. Um, but don't miss the context surrounding the verse. Don't miss the fact that it's in a conversation, that it's an answer to a real, genuine question, and that Christ is seeking to give to Thomas, in this particular case, genuine comfort and hope for the question that he has. So before we read, I want to take a moment. I'm going to pray for you guys. You guys pray for me so that God can receive glory from all that's said today. Father, we love you. We thank you that you are the God who is all of the things that we have sung this morning. You're the God who saves. You're the God who loves. You're the God who gives. You're the God who judges. You are the God who is righteous. You are the God who is gracious. You are the God who is loving. So God, as we open your word now, we pray that you soften our hearts, that you tear down our pride, our desire to be right, our desire to justify our actions. God, we pray that you lay us bare before the power of your word and that your word speak directly into our lives and that you make us recipients of that word who then go out and obey and do the things that you have called us to do. Father, we pray that this morning nothing happens apart from your will and that you receive glory from all this done. In your precious holy name we pray. Amen. 
All right, we're going to start John 13, verse 34. It says this, it says, I give you a new command. These are the words of Jesus. Love one another just as I have loved you. You must also love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Lord, Simon Peter said to him, where are you going? Jesus answered, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me later. Lord, Peter asked, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus replied, will you lay down your life for me? I assure you, a rooster will not crow until you have denied me three times. Jesus continues, beginning of chapter 14, after just turning Peter away and, and in some ways denouncing Peter's great exhortation that he would lay down his life for his Savior. After that, that rebuke in some ways, Christ says, your heart must not be troubled. Believe in God and believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If not, I would have told you. I'm going away to prepare a place for you. If I go away and prepare a place for you, I will come back and receive you to myself so that where I am, you may be also. You know the way to where I am going. Then Thomas, in this, in this very transparent, you know, Thomas gets a bad rap. Um, doubting Thomas, da 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 Thomas, you gotta love him for his genuine questions. There's no pretense with Thomas. He just comes out and says, Lord, I don't know where you're going. You just said that I do and I don't. How can we know the way? In the verse we all know, Jesus told him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you know me, you will also know my Father. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. So as, as, we, as we think about the, the structure of this passage going back into chapter 13, there, there is the, the strong truth in this passage that's become known as the exclusivity of the gospel, which is just a big way of saying that Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the only way to the Father. But notice also what Christ couches that bold statement in. What's surrounding it? And what we see is, is we work through chapter 14 is there are assurances and there is comfort that he is giving to his disciples. And yes, you know, Thomas is the one here who asked the question, but if you back up into chapter 13, Peter didn't get it either. And that's the reason for that rebuke at the end of chapter 13. Peter's essentially saying, well, my Lord, I will go with you because look what I will do. I will lay my life down for you. And Christ, of course, in his, his, his knowledge, knew that what was going to happen. Peter was going to deny him. But even more importantly than that, Jesus realized that Peter was missing the point. Thomas is the one that said, Lord, you said we know the way, and I don't know the way. But Peter didn't get it either. Peter didn't get it. Peter thought, well, if I do all of these things for my Lord, then I will go, go join him in the house that he is preparing. That's just not true. It's just absolutely not true. So you have that rebuke, and then immediately Christ turns and says, let not your heart be troubled. 
the, these, things are, these things are heavy and these things are weighty. I mean, th- this is eternity that is at stake. And Christ, after this rebuke of Peter, when he, he essentially says, hey, I understand you've got good intentions, but you're not actually going to do those things, says, not, let, let not your heart be troubled. Almost as if he's saying, Peter, that is not your concern. That is not your burden to carry. That is not what I'm asking of you. It says very simply, believe in me and believe in my Father. So you have this comfort, these words of Christ of assurance. Believe in me. Believe also in my Father. Let not your heart be troubled. Verses 2 through 4 Christ paints this this picture of of heavenly hospitality, for lack of a a better way of putting it. So you have this imagery all throughout the New Testament of these familial familial relationships. So you you have Christ, you have the Father, you have these references to being adopted into the family of God, and those type of familial references continue here in verses two through four when Christ paints the picture of what the kingdom will look like in terms of house. So Christ says, In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If not, I would have told you I'm going away to prepare a place for you. So yet again, Christ is using very kind and hospitable words in dealing with his disciples who, quite frankly, just don't get it. He's saying, there, there is a house. There's a real house. There's plenty of room there. I am going there to prepare it, and I will come back, and I will get you, and I will bring you into that house. That sounds very nice on like a, you know, when you don't really think about it level. But, I mean, think about this, like you and I interacting with one another. Somebody said, hey, my father has a house. It's really big, and I know you don't have a home. I'm going to go prepare it, and then I'm going to come back and get you and take you there so that you have a family and a place and a meaning and a home and belonging and meaning and place. And I'm not only, not only going to go build the place, I'm going to come back and get you and bring you to that house. Yet again, it's the, the, the rebuke to Peter is, is almost continuing. Peter, I hear you. Like, I appreciate the gesture, but I'm the one who's doing the work here, Christ says. I'm the one who's preparing the house. I'm the one who's going to come back and get you and bring you into that house. Verse 4 comes the, 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 the phrase that throws Thomas for a loop. Christ says, you know the way to where I am going. It's almost confusing. It's like, whoa, like what, what, whoa, like what's happening here? Like you're preparing a place, you're coming to get us, and now you're telling us that we know the way to the place that you're taking us to? Like what? What do you mean? So verse 5, we can blame Thomas all we want, but that's a very logical question. Hold on, question. You just said you're building a place. You're going to come get me, take me there, and then you say I know the way there? Like, what is going on? Like, this doesn't make any sense. 
Verse six, Christ clarifies. He says, you know the way because I am the way. You know the way because you know me. You know the way, you know the truth, and you have the life because you know me. I do all the work. I prepare the place. My Father's house is large enough. I will come back and get you, and you know the way because you know me. So verse, verse 6 is one of the most poignant verses in all of Scripture. To be clear, what Christ is saying here is, is exactly what it says, plain text. He is the way, the truth, and the life. If one wants to be with the Father, there is no other way to get there other than through Christ the Son. There's nothing we can do. There's no actions that we can undertake. There are no words that we can say. There are no pilgrimages that we can take that will put us into the presence of the Father's house other than knowing the Son. That's it. It's exclusive. Now, this has a lot of meaning, not so much in the Bible Belt South, um, but in an international context, um, and I've actually seen this with my own two eyes. We're on a remote island, Indonesia. We go into this house, and we were told it was a group of, um, group of believers, and they were worshiping, and they were worshiping, but it was the strangest conglomeration of things you could ever possibly imagine. It was some mixture of Buddhism, Christianity, and Taoism all mixed together. So it was just a very, very odd scenario. So in that case, the, the truth is very poignant. It's like, okay, I, I see that you're trying to find your way. Well, the only way is through Jesus Christ. But I think there's also another way that this truth is, is powerful. I think it's hard for some of us, it's hard for some of us and easy for some of us, for those of us who kind of who grew up in the church and, you know, the Bible was part of what we did, like, this was never really a question necessarily. Like, the assumption was Christ was the way, the truth, and the life, and that was the way life was built for us. But there are others of us who genuinely struggle with this question. What is the way to the Father? What is the way to the Father's house? And in the midst of that struggle, this passage can bring great clarity and great hope. Christ says, put all your other pursuits aside. If you want to know the Father, you must know me. For I am the way, the truth, and the life. And I think we've all had moments in our life, maybe not with this particular struggle, but with other things where we just didn't know the path forward. We had life laid out before us, and it was complex and convoluted, and we just didn't know what the, the next step was. And I think we've all had in those moments that, that, that point of clarity where you see a path forward. Maybe it's a book you read, maybe it's a sermon you hear, maybe it's a friend speaking into your life, but what was once muddled becomes clear, and you see the path forward, and you know how to walk that path forward. And that's what Christ is doing here for Thomas. No, 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 no. Thomas, you're asking the wrong question. Let me grant you clarity on how you come to be a part 
of the Father's house. Last thing I want to point out about this verse is it's a little bit of an odd statement. Like, think about, just think about it. Christ, a, a person, a being, says, I am three things. I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. It's kind of hard to reconcile in your mind. How can a person be three things? How does that, like the syntax is just a little strange. Like person is three things. How does that work? The point Christ is trying to make is that, that, that he is, he is the I am, hearkening back to the Old Testament. He is all of these things. The exclusivity of the gospel is a person. It's not a thing. It's not a list of things to do. It's a person. So if you want to know the way, the truth, and the life, it is the person of Jesus Christ. It is the I am that has existed from the beginning. The the way is not a list of do's and don'ts. The truth is not something outlined by a pastor in a pulpit. And the way is not a road that you walk on. All of those things, as it comes to life with the Father, is the person of Jesus Christ. And if we want to have room in the Father's house, then we must know the person of Jesus Christ. Christ closes his, this part of the passage before continuing the conversation on with Philip and with others by saying this. He says, if you know me, you will also know my Father. We've talked about that. And then he ends with this, this last assurance, and it's, it's very powerful. He says, from now on, you do know him and have seen him. The, the power of assumption in that phrase is it's hearkening. You know me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. So you now know the Father, and you have seen him. There's no, okay, yes, yes, yes. You believe in me, and then you do A, B, C, D, and E, and then you, you know, make your life look this way, and then, okay, then maybe you get a place in the Father's house, and you get to see the Father. No. You believe in me. You believe that I am the way, the truth, and the life. And because of that, I can tell you with 100% assurance that you know the Father and you have seen the Father. So Christ is trying to take something very complex. We're, we're, we're talking about one of the, the great groaning questions of humanity. And Christ boils it down and says, I am. I am. If you know me, you know the Father. The, the, passage, the passage is meant to give hope. It's meant to bring clarity. It's meant to be a, a balm for restless souls. So I think the question for us today is how do we view this text? At a minimum, for those of us found in Christ, this text should give us great hope. 
when, when things go haywire, when things get crazy, when life throws us curveballs, we can come back here and say, the way, the truth, and the life is found in Christ. And I know the Father and will be in the house with my Father and will have a place with my Father and will be part of my Father's family and will be adopted as a son and as a daughter into the family of God because I know Christ. That's meant to give us hope and assurance. The the, the trouble that I see is that often, myself included, I have a very horrific story about this that I will share in a moment. We like to wield 14.6, I am the way, the truth, and the life, like a sword to cut people down. It's like a proof text. It's like, oh, oh yeah, you believe that, well, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, so get it together. And it's like, whoa, 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 whoa. Like, wrong attitude, A. B, that's exactly what Peter just said at the end of chapter 13 that Christ rebuked him for. And C, what what, what does Christ say in 14.1? Let not your heart be troubled. Let not your heart be troubled. So we have to be careful when we wield this verse, especially when we're in arguments with others. Because if we wield this verse to cut people down or to prove ourselves right or to make ourselves feel better, we've missed it. We just missed it. We've totally missed it. We missed the way in which Christ intended for this message to come across I was 12 years old, entering the lovely stage of life known as middle school that we all love and adore so much. And uh, I was in a Christian school, and, um, you know, for dramatic effect, um, I was very sure that the beliefs that I had were right, which is not necessarily a bad thing, but I lacked the emotional intelligence as a 12-year-old to understand how to lovingly bestow what I knew upon others. So I'll never forget this, 12 years old, sitting at lunch, and I was talking with some folks at the, the lunch table I was at, and I knew that one of the, per, the people that I was talking to was Catholic. Um, and they said something, and we're, you know, being dumb middle schoolers, I got offended about whatever they said, And so I fired back with, well, at least I don't worship somebody who's dead, referring to the Catholic belief in Mary, and then followed up with, because, you know, Christ is the only, the the way, the truth, and the life. Not my greatest moment as a human being on planet Earth. To show you the impact that that had, I was 12 years old, five years later, I was 17, that that person, maybe related to that accident, but maybe not, ended up leaving the school. I never really saw him again. Five years later, um, I saw that person at a, just at a football game, happenstance, and uh, you know, I was just talking to him, and um, I'll never forget what they said. They said, you know, what you said to me caused me years of hurt and pain. By the grace of God, 
that person is a believer today. But did I say what was true? Yes. But did I wield this passage in such a way as to harm another person? Absolutely. When we use the word of God, when we see these texts, when we talk about things like exclusivity that are absolutely true, we can't give people false hope. We have to give them the truth of Scripture that if you want to go to the Father, you have to know the Son. And that is the only way that you will get to the Father. We have to give them that truth. But if we don't follow Christ's example and give them that truth in a way that causes their hearts not to be troubled, that looks out for their spiritual good, then quite frankly, we should probably not say much at all. This is not a passage to prove that we are right or that we have God on our side. That thought, that type of thinking just should have no place in our lives. Should be a message of hope to those who are searching. If we instead use it to prove a point or cast judgment on others, then we are more concerned with our own glory than God's glory, and we should not cheapen the glory of his gospel to further our own insecurity and desire to be right. If we find ourselves in conversations with others, and we get to a place where our ultimate objective is to prove that we're right, we just need to stop. Just whoop, stop. Like, mm, no, like this is not going anywhere healthy or helpful. And we should especially not wield the word of God in texts like this that are sacred and are meant to bring hope and to bring people into the family of God at the table of God. We should not cheapen those things to our own ends. So this brings me back to the holidays. Here we are. We're, we're just celebrating Thanksgiving, moving into Christmas, celebrating the birth of Christ, celebrating his, his coming to earth. And we can talk about all the historical inaccuracies within that, but that's another topic for another day. Um, but at a minimum, this is a time when the larger context in which we live stops and starts to look outside themselves a little bit. And as those who, who know the Father, who know the one, who is the way, the truth, and the life, and who has been brought into a, a house with, with many rooms that has enough places for all of us so that we can sit and and dine and commune with the creator of the universe. I think it sends a very powerful message to society around us when we view the holidays selfishly. When we, when we put the, the good of our, of our family and the desire for our own comfort above the potential of bringing others into the family of God. I mean, let's be honest, we're already doing all the work. You got the turkey, you got the dressing, sweet potatoes, whole nine yards, house is clean, people are coming. So why do we turn others away and treat this as like, this is our time. Like, don't, I'll see you tomorrow, but not today. Like, this is ours, and I'm going to keep it over here. Should we not, 
as those who have been brought into the family of God by the Christ who is the way, the truth, and the life, throw our doors wide open and say, Lord, bring us those who need a family. Should our Thanksgiving tables not be so filled with love and awkward conversation that the kingdom of God is just glorified? Should we not be willing to be uncomfortable for the sake of bringing others into the family of God so they can know the one who is the way, the truth, and the life? I, I, I was terribly convicted the past four days. Um, Sarah and I went down to Florida to visit her family. And um, we're going to hope they don't ever hear this, because if they hear this, I will probably be excommunicated from the family. But they, they, they are literally some of the most welcoming people I've ever encountered in my life. Thanksgiving, they were there, we were there, their three daughters were there, two of the boyfriends of the daughters were there. Um, the wife is an, uh, the, is an attorney and she works with um, at-risk youth. And so she invited three of her guys that she's been working with over to the house for Thanksgiving dinner, um, along with one of their daughters with special needs. Um, and she has a boyfriend who has also special needs. And so here we are, like no pretense, plastic chairs, plastic tables, back porch. Here we go. Everybody sits down. And is it, was it awkward and was it uncomfortable? And were there times where it was like, oh my goodness, what are we doing? Absolutely. Absolutely. It was terribly uncomfortable at times. But there were two brothers there who had been separated. It's the first Thanksgiving they had had together in years. Two brothers been lost in the court system, been abused. Another guy, his story's unbelievable, but he too had been abused. And here he is sitting at a table with family. And as if that didn't give me cold chills enough, the, 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 the patriarch, if you will, just had a, had a terrible back injury. And so we're sitting there, we're getting you know, started eating, and every Thanksgiving we go around and share something we're thankful for. And this is a guy, no seminary training, no formal Bible training, didn't even really grow up in the church. Sitting there, you know, clamshell on, back surgery, can't sit straight up for more than an hour. And he gave the most robust theology of suffering I've ever heard in my life. Just genuine outpouring. It's like, I don't know why this happened to me, but I know that God is good and that God is sovereign and that he's going to use my suffering for good things. And it's like, my word, like, what more do you want? And then we started going around and, and sharing genuinely, what, you know, what are we thankful for? And uh, there, there were so many things that you just, you just wouldn't expect. One of, you know, one of, one of the... The attendees, he has, he's on the autism spectrum. He has some disabilities. 
so it came to him, and it's like, all right, Jack, what are you thankful for? And, you know, he listed off several things that he's thankful for, and then he said, I'm thankful that, he, that Jesus died on the cross. Genuine. Like, not just, I know this is what I should say. Like, genuine outpouring. And I walked away from that meal and said, my word, like, what a picture of this. If you want to come into this house, that is what it looks like. That is a very real and genuine way that we can make our houses and our tables and our holidays look like this. To welcome those who were disenfranchised and not welcomed and cast aside. Come have a seat at my table. Be a part of my family. And then we'll show you and we'll introduce you to the one who is the way, the truth, and the life so that you can have a seat at a table that makes this look like shame. So that's my prayer for us this holiday season. That we would not wield John 14, 6 as a proof text to prove that we're right. But that we would wield John 14, 6 as a tool to bring people into our house and show them to our Father so that they can know the Son, they can join us in eternity, so we can sit together at a table as sons and as daughters of the living God. Let us pray. Father, we love you. We thank you that you are clear that you are truth, that you did not leave us here to wander helplessly with no guide. Father, we thank you that you loved us enough to send us your son so that we can know him and know you and so that we can play, have a place in your house. God, we pray for us we pray that we would not take these things lightly. We pray that we would echo into eternity thankfulness for what you have done by extending to others the, the grace that we received from you that we did not deserve. So, Father, we pray as we go and we go about our holiday season that it would look different, that we would, we would embrace discomfort, that we would start to see our, our families as something much larger than biological ties. And, God, we pray most of all that we would bring you glory in doing these things. God, we pray that as we walk these things out, that we would not become like Peter and say, oh Lord, look what I have done for you. But that we would rest, that we would not let our hearts be troubled and that we would simply just believe. Father, we pray that you strengthen our faith, that you strengthen our resolve, that you strengthen our obedience, that you fill us with your love this holiday season. In your precious holy name we pray. Amen.